Grace and peace, Waterstone, it's good to be with you today. Before we get into the word, just some family news that we want to share with you, a couple of things. First, we want to invite you to be praying for the Wilton family as Gib Wilton uh, went home to glory last Sunday. We uh, buried him on Thursday at a graveside. There was a procession. Gib was a uh, Denver firefighter for 29 years, and he was honored well with uh, salutes on the way to the cemetery. Gib and Birdie Wilton were founding members of Waterstone Community Church. They are pillars and leave a legacy of uh, service and gospel here at Waterstone. And we stood beside his grave, Gib's grave, on Thursday with the knowledge that now he is part of that great clot of witnesses who is here even with us and watching us today. So we invite your prayers for Bertie Wilton, 59 years of marriage. Uh, this will be just a really hard adjustment for Bertie. Uh, we ask for your prayers. And if you'd like to send her a card, she is in our database. You can find it on our website at the connect button at Waterstone and find her address in our database. We also want you to know that if you are uh, struggling financially, if you're out of work, uh, if there's any way we can help you with food or rent or mortgage, well, our care fund is ready to assist you. And just go to our COVID care page and where it says prayer requests, let us know not only how we can pray for you, but also how we can help you. And uh, we have resources for counseling, counselors with discounted rates. If there's any way we can come alongside you, please let us know. And then we also want to encourage you to keep checking the website. Things seem to be accelerating a bit towards when we can have services and and uh, we are making plans and uh, a lot of activity going on around that. But please just keep checking the website and we'll update that as soon as we make plans and have uh, uh, ideas that we can begin to gather again together. Also, finally, we want to say congratulations to not only our high school seniors graduating, but Waterstone has many college and grad school uh, uh, graduates that we are celebrating during these weeks as well. And so every, to every college graduate and everyone graduating grad school, we say congratulations and Jesus be with you uh, as you graduate. Let's pray now as we uh, begin now to turn to the word of God. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that as we turn to the Proverbs today for wisdom, that you would grant us that wisdom we need to navigate the complex realities of this life. You promise us, Lord, wisdom when we humbly ask and come to you, and we do that now. Uh, through Jesus and for his name and his glory, we pray. Just enliven this word, speak to our hearts, give us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. In case you haven't noticed, uh, when it comes to the Christian movement, sinners have all the advantages. Uh, someone can step on your toe 490 times and you still have to love them and do what's best for them. Sinners can talk bad about you, but you have to keep your mouth shut and not cut them down with your words. When a relationship is broken, the cost to repair that relationship is yours. The reason, God says, is because he's repaired our relationship and he's absorbed the cost of our sins and so he wants us to do that for others. The problem is, <laughs> I'd rather stay focused on your sins than mine. I'd rather 
uh, prop up myself by staying angry at you, and I'd rather punish you by refusing to forgive. It's just easier, and it's instinct, and it's less difficult to do. And uh, actually, nine times out of ten, it seems to work pretty well, except for this one pesky side effect, bitterness. Anger gone to rot, arthritis of the soul. Welcome to Love This Book. We are preaching through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We are connecting weekly with this great story that is reality. God made the world and everything in it, and he made it good. But we broke the world and everything in it and caused things to be hard. But God sent his son, Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, to come and become our righteousness by living the life we should have lived and becoming our forgiveness by dying the death we should have died and become our eternal life by rising again out of the grave. And he's disarmed all the powers of evil and we await for him to come again and make all things new. But in the waiting, he's given us this literature in the Bible called the wisdom books. And wisdom is about how to work with the moral fiber that God's placed in the universe so that our lives can flourish or at least meet with less resistance. And today, we go to the wisdom book of Proverbs to understand something that's very relevant to this time during a pandemic. The topic is anger. Tension is everywhere, in large part because there are massive cultural values being tested in our culture by this pandemic. Namely, the highest value in American culture, personal freedom individual rights, or as many cultural uh, commentators have been calling it, you do you. You do you, I'll do me. This idea that we are each uh, have personal freedoms. But when a pandemic comes, the way to mitigate some of the damage of the pandemic is to not only me do me, but I also need to watch over you. And the result of this uh, has been a lot of anger pumped into our culture. And there's trigger points everywhere, like mask or no mask, like open the economy or continue mitigation efforts, like conspiracy theories or trusted authorities. And what are the answers? And everyone is some level angered by some of the unknown, the fear, the disbelief, all that's going on around us. And it's not only these massive values in conflict in our culture, but it's even that angry is kind of a slippery emotion itself. It's, it operates actually very much like the coronavirus in that you don't really know it's there until you see the symptoms. And what do the symptoms of anger look like? Well, often they look like this. They look like you being on the phone trying to work when your child at home comes up with a very innocent and necessary question. But because you're at work and because you're worried about your job and your job performance, you snap at the child and, and everything's extra juiced with anger um, because it's actually leaking over. It's a symptom of what's really going on here inside. Or, or often it can look like this way in a friendship or in a marriage relationship where your partner's supposed to take out the trash and you have to remind him three times. And in that third time, there are some choice adjectives. And all of that is, you know, you're not really angry over a pile of garbage. You're angry over this building frustration that your marriage has become during the last few weeks of living together so much. And so uh, anger is very relevant to today, and we want to see what the Proverbs has to say about it to help us navigate anger in a time of pandemic. First thing the Proverbs has for us is this, that anger 
is powerful. And in fact, so powerful, it can be destructive. If you look at one of the Proverbs in chapter 19, it says, a hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them, and you will have to do it again. That's such visual language, a hot-tempered person. The word hot there is actually the word fire. Now, we in Colorado, we know something about fire, right? We know that it's so useful for cooking and for heating and for light and for melting. It's used every day in our lives, this idea of heat from, from fire. We all, you know, and even overlooked, like it's, a, it's one fire that keeps our car running again and again and again, or our furnace coming on. But we also here in Colorado know how destructive fire can be, and that within seconds, a forest fire can be completely out of control. And it's interesting, it's so hot, that the proverb says that the person must pay the penalty. It literally says there in the Hebrew that the penalty or the punishment is carried with the fire. In other words, it has consequences. And what are those consequences? We see them every day and we've also experienced them, unfortunately, almost every day of our lives. But the first one is that anger can be very destructive to our health. Research after research talks about how anger is connected to high blood pressure and strokes and heart disease and weakened immune systems, anxiety, and depression. Look at Proverbs 14. It says, whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but jealousy rots the bones. In other words, that emotion wrapped around anger, even jealousy and envy, is destructive to physical health. Every year, the Gallup organization produces what they used to call the hostility index, but they've changed it to be more friendly. Now they call it the global emotion report, or grrr. It's the, this study about what are the hardest most hostile cities to live in. And surprisingly, uh, well, guess, what's the most hostile city in America? Let me give you a hint. It's always sunny in, let me give you another hint. The city of brotherly, sisterly, La Philadelphia is the most hostile city in America. Year after year after year, it's in the top five. Uh, they, 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 they measure traffic jams and they measure how uh, abrasive grocery store checkouts are and they measure how concert venues are. And all these things add up to a hostile incident. By the way, Denver is usually always in the bottom 10 of American cities for hostility. Thank you. You're welcome. So one year after the hostility index was published, uh, Redford Williams, who's the director of the Behavioral Health Center at Duke University Medical School, said this about anger. He said, anger kills. There's a strong correlation between hostility and death rates. The angrier people are, the more cynical they are, the shorter their lifespan. Anger ruts the bones. It's destructive to health. It's not only destructive to health, but it's also destructive to relationships, uh, the Proverbs say that a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Now, when we were talking about the power of words in the Proverbs two weeks ago, we, the metaphor was like a sword, and you can put a sword in, and you can take a sword out, but what you can't take out is the wound. And what makes words really reckless and painful is anger. And sometimes things are said in anger, you, you wish you could take it out, but the wound stays for a, sometimes a long time. Philip Yancey tells the story 
of a friend whose marriage has gone through tough times. And one night, George passed a breaking point and emotionally exploded. He pounded the table and the floor. I hate you, he screamed at his wife. I won't take it anymore. I've had enough. I won't go on. I won't let it happen. No, no, no. Several months later, my friend woke up in the middle of the night and heard strange sounds coming from the room where his two-year-old son slept. He went down the hall, stood outside his son's door, and shivers ran through his flesh. In a soft voice, the two-year-old was repeating word for word with precise inflection the climactic argument between his mother and father. I hate you. I won't take it anymore. No, no, no. And George realized that in some awful way, he had just passed on his pain and anger and unforgiveness to the next generation. It not only hurts our health and hurts our relationships, but Proverbs is also destructive to our mind and our way of thinking. Have you ever said something or done something in anger and afterwards you're just sitting there and feeling like a fool? Do you know why you feel like a fool? Because you were a fool. Anger creates this insanity, this thing that takes us out of our minds and we do things that are very, very out of character because anger is destructive to a, a right mind. Several years ago in the New York Times book review, Mary Gordon wrote a piece on anger and one hot August afternoon, she was in the kitchen preparing for dinner for 10 people. Although the house was full of people, no one offered to help her chop, stir, or set the table. She was stewing in her own juices when her two small children and her 78-year-old mother insisted that she stop preparations and take them swimming. They then positioned themselves on the, in the car, honking the horn and shouting her name out the windows so that all the neighbors could hear, reminding her that she had promised to take them swimming at the pond. That, Gordon says is when she lost it. She flew outside, jumped on the hood of the car, pounded on the windshield. She told her mother and her children that she was never ever going to take them anywhere and none of them was ever going to have one friend in any house of hers until the hour of her death, which she said she hoped was soon. Then the frightening thing happened. I became a huge bird, she said, a carrion crow. My legs became hard stalks. My eyes were sharp and vicious. I developed a murderous beak. Greasy black feathers took the place of arms, and I flapped and I flapped, and I blotted out the sun's light with my flapping. Even after she had been forced off the hood of the car, it took her a while to come back to herself. And when she did, she was appalled because she genuinely realized that she'd frightened her children. Her son said to her, I was scared because I didn't know who you were. Anger can make us unrecognizable. Lastly, anger can destroy the will. Back in chapter 19, a hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them and you will have to do it again and again and again. Anger is addictive. Human neurobiology tells us this, that anger rewards the brain with huge doses of adrenaline when you get angry. In fact, that's how some families cope with misery, is anger. It becomes 
addictive adrenaline. And it's interesting to get families like that together and uh, ask them questions. And what you hear are things like, well, it's just the way we are. We have to get things off our chest. I'm just wired that way. I have to tell it like it is. And what begins to happen is, first, no one wants to be around that family, but the family becomes more isolated and lonely. And then they become more anger, and here you have this destructive cycle of anger. So the Proverbs says, the first thing a wise person understands is how powerful and how powerfully destructive anger can be. But then Proverbs has a second thing we need to learn to be wise about anger, and that's this, the source of anger. We need to know where anger comes from. We go to chapter 16, verse 32, better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. What's interesting here is the Hebrew word pictures about anger. That phrase, patient person, literally in the Hebrew says, uh, long in the nostril. In other words, anger, the word for angry is, is the word nostril. When a person is angry, their nostrils flare. But it takes a long time to get to that point. It's a slow anger. Here's the point of the Proverbs. The ideal with anger is this. Not that you never get angry, because there are certain things that should make us angry. More on that in a moment. But it's also not explosive, destructive anger, because the Proverbs have already talked about that. That's not good. What's the ideal? Slow anger. Long in the nostrils, a long time before they flare. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from God himself. He describes his own self as long in the nostrils. In Exodus 34, God says, God, show me your glory. Show me who you are. And this is what he says. And God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, long in the nostril and abounding in love and faithfulness. You see, we are made in God's image to have anger. It's right to be angry about the right things and the wrong things in our culture. It's, it's right to be slow to anger. God himself is slow to anger. And I, I would even make the case, well, this is interesting. Do a word study on the word nostril or the word anger in the Bible, and it's over 500 times. And 85% of the times it's used, it's describing God as the one who's angry. And we, we've pared down the Lion of Judah, as Dorothy Sayers said. We've made him this, this curate, this king of pious old ladies. We don't understand. In fact, we moderns, we don't even like the idea of God being angry. But I would submit this to you, that if you don't have an angry God, you don't have a loving God. And that if you've never been angry about anything, you've never truly loved anything. Becky Pippert puts it in a quote. It's a rather long quote. Bear with it, but I think it captures this idea perfectly. It, it, she says, Think about how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. As E.H. Gifford writes, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates him, in him, the drunkard, liar, the traitor. 
If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. So, I, And I hear people say, well, that's the Old Testament God. I like the New Testament Jesus better. Well, I would invite you to read the New Testament Jesus. There's anger there. Go to John chapter 2. And also at the end of John, I believe it's in chapter 19, when he walks into the temple, sees people making money in the temple. It's become a business commodity. What does he do? Okay, everyone in time out. I'm going to count to three. No, he flips tables over. Or go to Mark chapter 3, one of my favorite stories about Jesus. When on the Sabbath, a guy walks into the synagogue with a withered hand and Jesus is about to heal him. But Jesus' pastor says, no, no, it's the Sabbath. You can't do work on the Sabbath. And Jesus, realizing that his own pastors don't even understand the intentions of mercy behind the law of God. Jesus gets upset and he says to the man, stick out your hand. And the guy sticks out his hand and it's healed. It's an anger miracle. It's, it's an anger miracle. Jesus gets, I go to John chapter 11 when at the tomb of his best friend Lazarus, Jesus is so upset about what death has done to our world that it literally says his nose snorts. He's so angry about death. I'm glad we have an angry Jesus who cares passionately about people in this world and the things that cause us to suffer. Paul in Ephesians chapter four, verse 26, even says to the church, the things that make God angry should make us angry, which is why he says, in your own anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. But it's actually kind of a weak translation. It really says, be angry and do not sin. It's a command, an imperative, that there are times and reasons that we should be an angry church. But what happens, that anger goes from being righteous and good, actually a God-given capacity to defend something we love, a God-given capacity of emotions to say what's important to us and what wrongs we need to address. How does it go from there to becoming sin, to becoming destructive? Well, briefly, it goes like this. Anger is a part of love. So when love goes wrong, anger goes wrong. Or as Augustine put it, when our love becomes disordered, our anger becomes disordered. What's disordered love? Well, what happens when we have disordered love is this. We were made to love God and God alone with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, our neighbor as ourself. To be human is to love. You cannot not love. You are what you love. But what happens is that we, instead of loving God, we begin to love other things in the place of God. Things like family, good things. Things like work, things like pleasure and money, things like sex, things like uh, identity and appearance. Things that we think will make us happy, will give us identity and, and give us accomplishment and satisfy our soul. You see, we, we make good things into ultimate things and love them. That's disordered love. Well, what happens when something gets in front of one of our disordered loves? Let's say, for instance, uh, this question. Why does being snubbed 
by another human being, whether an intentional overlooking of something you've done and you don't get the credit, or someone makes a slight comment about, you know, offhanded about your appearance or about your performance. Why does a snub like that keep you awake for nights and make you much more angry than an injustice happening on the other side of the world to an entire country? Why? Disordered love produces disordered anger. We crave human approval in that instance more than we crave God's love. God's love is just an abstraction to us. Where we really get our soul fed is by people praising us. And when someone snubs us, look out. You see, disordered love produces disordered anger. And I would argue that most of the time when our anger becomes destructive, when it becomes disordered, it's because one of our prayers is an answered, mainly this prayer, my kingdom come, my will be done. So the proverb says that anger can be destructive, so manage it well. Know its source. It comes from God, actually, and it's wired into us at being made in his image, and it has great capacity for good, and there are things we should be angry about. But what happens is when our love becomes disordered, our anger can become disordered. So how, how do we heal it? Three things. First, admit it. Go back to Proverbs 16.32. Better is a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. I want us to see again, long to the nostril. You need to check your nostrils. How's your anger level? Are you slow to anger like God? Do you reflect on your anger? Do you search it out? Are you aware of it? Ask yourself this. Am I an angry person? In fact, give someone, your close friends, a hunting license to go into your life and watch you and call out the anger they see, and whether it's righteous or whether it's destructive and disordered. I pray that there are more conversations like this that happen in Waterstone small groups and Waterstone friendships and Waterstone families where we begin to realize that righteous anger is actually a good thing. And calling out destructive anger in our lives is actually, even though it wounds, a work of great redemption. This is a story from Cry of the Soul by Dan Allender. These are the kindest conversations I hope we're having at Waterstone. I, Dan, the author, Dan Allender, had made a mistake that was going to cost me some extra money and time. I told Susan, my personal assistant, well, if you take less time for lunch breaks, maybe we can make up the loss over a year. I was, it was quickly said on my part and as rapidly forgotten. Several days later, Susan asked for some time. We sat down and she said, do you have any concerns about my work? Absolutely not, I replied. Why? Well, Tuesday, you made a remark about my lunchtime. And I wondered if you have any concerns or if your comment was something that came out of your frustration. Suddenly, Dan says, I felt embarrassed. I did recall the remark and wish Susan would go away. I assured her that I had no concerns and I was thrilled about her work and her heart for ministry and, and, and loyalty to me. I hoped my compliment would end the discussion and bury my small-minded remark. But Susan was angry. She did not take my gift and waltz out of the room. Instead, she leaned forward in her chair and said, sometimes I cannot tell when your teasing is fun and when it hides meanness. Her voice was tender and strong. Her eyes were full of pain 
and anger. I allowed her remark to roll off my back and I agreed that it must be difficult. But then she spoke with even greater intensity. I don't know what it would be like for you to so deeply desire to be like Jesus, but also so easily hurt others. I was taken aback by the intensity of her words and the kindness of her eyes. And I wanted to run, weep, hide, lash out. But instead, I felt exposed and invited to reflect on God's involvement with me. Susan's righteous anger was redemptive and in this world also rare. May Waterstone be the kind of community where those kinds of conversations happen because we are aware of our own nostrils, our own anger within. But secondly, not only admit your anger, ask yourself, am I an angry person? But analyze your anger. Proverbs 14 says, or 24 says, do not say, I'll do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. That I do not say, say to whom? Well, say to myself. What's happening here is self-talk. And the writer of the Proverbs is saying that one of the things we should be doing is asking ourselves, why am I angry? So we, 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 we come across the idea that we are an angry person. The next step is to say, what is that anger? Anger is like a dashboard light, right? You have to look under the hood now and find out what's going on that's making you angry because anger is always a cover emotion. It's usually not linked to the direct trigger or the direct situation, but it's usually been building up on the inside and it just comes lashing out because there's a wound inside and you have to get to the bottom of that. What's going on inside? For years, a counselor named Harv Powers used to come in and talk to our leadership group, and he used to tell the cheese sandwich story. The cheese sandwich story happened when a young couple came to Harv. They had young kids in the house, and uh, they were going through their normal busy morning routine when the husband decided to jump in and actually help make the children's lunches. And the wife hollers from a different room to the husband making the lunches, hey, don't forget, the kids like their bread uh, to have mayonnaise on both pieces. And for whatever reason, and there is a reason, the husband exploded. She, she can't even trust me to make the kids lunches. And so he yelled back at her and she was so wounded and hurt because he had never before offered to help with anything with the children and their, their lunches in the morning and had felt for years neglected in her care for the kids. And so they came in, sat down in Harv's office and said, Harv, or Harf said, why are you here? And they said, we're here because of a cheese sandwich. Told them the cheese sandwich story, and Harf says, no, you're not here because of a cheese sandwich. This has been going on for a long time. And eight or nine sessions later, they were making progress. You see, you have to ask yourself, what's making me angry? It's not the cheese sandwich. What's going on in here? So admit your anger. And I am, am I an angry person? And then ask, analyze it. Why? Am I so angry? And then lastly, the proverb says, then after you've done that work to be slow to anger, turn the anger back into ordered love. Look at Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. You turn the pain into 
love. Uh, I love how Augustine and commentators since that have said that that idea of burning coals on the head really speaks about a red face, a red face that someone that has because you don't respond in kind to their anger. You absorb the, the, what needs repaired in that relationship. You absorb the anger and the sin from them, and their only response is to be kind of ashamed by the grace they're receiving, the red face of regret. What's that look like? What's it look like to turn disordered anger into love. One of the great classic Waterstone stories back from the 90s. Uh, it, it's about our founding pastor, Nick. He, he tells this story back in the 90s. It's about his Toyota Land Cruiser. It threw a rod in Wyoming. We had to go up and get it. We brought it down to the mechanic. Then we were going to put a used engine in it. This was a 91 Land Cruiser. They got an engine from the junkyard. The junkyard said it was a 91. It wasn't. It was an 89 engine. They put it in, and because they put it in, it didn't match the transmission. So they destroyed the transmission. I took it back in. They put in another transmission. It destroyed that transmission, and they figured out, something's not right here. So they got one more transmission, and they put it in, and it had the wrong torque converter. It destroyed the engine. So they got a third engine. We're on a third engine and a third transmission, and I got it back, and it's running, but it pings, and the transmission clunks, and it leaks oil, and it won't pass emissions. I've got a really cheap car for sale, by the way. Nick goes on. Now, I have some legitimate reasons to be angry. I sat down and tried to think through why I'm angry. Slow to anger. Part of it is the inconvenience. I've been without my vehicle for six months. Part of that is that I'm frustrated with the mechanic because this was ultimately really their mistake. But then I began to explore deeper. And part of what I'm angry about is that I am ashamed that I bought a lemon. And I'm really frustrated because I was trying to save money. I thought I'll buy an older car and maybe that will get 100,000 miles more if I get one in good shape and have it checked out. And I thought I was doing this great thing, but I have not saved money on this thing and I'm angry about that. So some of it is me. So dealing with the mechanic, I made a decision that I would be assertive, but not aggressive. In other words, I have to come back and, and, and I and said, you need to fix this. This is your thing. But I've been polite about it with the mechanic and very patient. And one day I'm talking to Dave. He's the owner of the shop. He says, I don't get why you're, you're uh, responding this way. And I had this great opportunity to share with Dave. I said, ultimately, this is just a car. Not a very good one, but it takes you from A to B. It's just a car. It's not what's important to me in life. It's not like my kids. It's not like my walk with God or any of that. That's what's important. And Dave just listened. A couple of weeks ago, Nick writes, back then, I was taking my car back to get it fixed yet again. And we were on a test drive and we started talking. And Dave asked me what I did. It was great. I didn't have to lie. I didn't have to lie that I was a Christian and also a pastor. Think about that for a minute. I didn't have to lie. And that felt really good. And I've been thinking to myself, at least I got one right. This one worked out okay by the grace of God. And then the question is, how can we, like Nick, turn that kind of slow to anger into an opportunity to show the grace of God to the world? How do we get our hearts healed of anger? Simply this, the gospel. 
Believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross to absorb all of our sins and all of our destructive anger and all of God's wrath for what we've done to his world. Jesus soaked up all that and absorbed it on the cross so that he could give us the gentle answer from the cross. And what was that gentle answer? The gentle answer that turned away wrath, simply this. Because he drank the cup of our wrath, Jesus on the cross could say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, to the degree that our heart melts by Jesus absorbing the wrath we deserved and our own destructive anger and taking that to the cross, to the degree that that melts our hearts, that's what gives us the ability to give a gentle answer to anyone else, even those who've wronged us, the cross, and what God's love has meant to us. So here's the anger equation from the cross. It's this. Everyone will face this. I've been wronged, but I've wronged God. And God responded to me with gentleness so I can respond to anyone who's wronged me with gentleness. Will you? The way to get a heart like that is to come to Jesus. Jesus says, come unto me, all of you in this pandemic who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of soul. You will find rest for your souls. Do you want that rest? Jesus says, come to me. Let's pray together. Lord, for anyone here now listening who's been especially wrestling with anger and some of the consequences of their anger. I pray that they could find rest today in Jesus. I pray that anyone who's listening and has never before come to that place in their life where they say, Jesus, I'm yours. I want to be part of your story. I want to give my heart, my full allegiance to the King, to you, that right now in this moment they could say a simple prayer, I'm yours. I'm yours. I want a new heart I want help with my anger. Please come into my life, Jesus. I'm yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now our hearts melted by the love of Jesus. Let's proclaim together the deep, deep love of our Father that he has for us.